Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Pigliucci, and with me as always is my co-host, Julia Galev. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Massimo, today we've got a very meaty episode for our listeners. The topic is a whole cluster of related philosophical positions. So we've dubbed this episode the isms episode. Uh, and the, the philosophical positions we're going to talk about uh, include naturalism, scientism, dualism, supernaturalism, and physicalism. And I know that's kind of a, 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 a big more, mouthful. Probably. And yeah. a couple more, probably. <laughs> um, and the, the connection between all of these isms, these uh, philosophical positions, is that they all tackle the question of to what degree uh, science can really explain all of the important and interesting questions about the world that we care about. And so we're going to talk about question how uh, science bears on questions of free will and ethics and aesthetics, because um, accepting uh, a number of these philosophical positions, which, which many people uh, and many scientists do, uh, means that we have to often give up the notion that, we, that there is an answer to many of the questions that we care about. So we're going to talk about to what extent that's actually true. Right. So it, it is in some sense about the relationship between science and relig- uh, sorry, science and philosophy at a very <laughs> fundamental level. However. Was that a Freudian slip there, Matthew? I, hope, I <laughs> sure hope not. <laughs> I'm telling your not. colleagues. Yes. Um, but so t- t- at, a, at a very fundamental level, that is one of the things that, um, that, these, that, that, that we're going to talk about. Um, but also these are very different. Um, some of the things that we're going to talk about today are different or related and interdependent ways to think about the foundations of reality where, uh, by that term, I don't mean what most people normally think about that is, you know, is the universe made of quarks or, or strings at the bottom? That is what most people normally think about. Yeah, I, <laughs> All right, the right. I know. When, when I talk about my, when I talk to my mother and ask her, you know, what do you think of the, the foundation of reality? She, she goes for strings because she likes them. Yeah, exactly how the strings vibrate. <laughs> yeah. Okay, go so on. So that is not, in, 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 we're not talking about it in that sense because clearly the answer to that kind of question if, in fact, can, that question can be answered, that, that, that answer is clearly scientific. It's, it's empirical. You know, mm-hmm. It's either the, the world is either made of quarks at the bottom or it's made of strings or it's made of whatever else physicists are going to be thinking about Bits, over the next for strings. example. Yeah, you know, whatever it is. But it is an empirical question. Whether it's answerable or not, of course, depends on you know, the, the availability of the proper instruments or somebody thinking about the proper sure. theory. And Our brain and all power. That. Right, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But at bottom is an empirical question, which means that it's really fundamentally scientific. The isms that we're going to be talking about today, on the other hand, are really philosophical positions or metaphysical positions, really. Now, I happen to believe, and a lot of philosophers today do as well, that metaphysics cannot be done uh, without physics, that is, you know, mm-hmm. metaphysics better be informed by science. 
it also better be informed by epistemology. That is, you know, when you're making a metaphysical claim, you should be able to answer the question, well, how do you know that that mm-hmm. is the question? What kind of argument are you making that that is the thing? But uh, as we'll see, I think, during our discussion, a lot of these things actually cannot be settled um, empirically. They can be, these are questions that can be informed by the available science. I mean, there's, there's some science that can tell us, especially fundamental physics, that can tell us a few things about these various isms, but really doesn't settle the matter. And in fact, in some sense, the answer to the questions you were asking earlier, such as, uh, you know, free will and, and, and uh, consciousness and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Though and actually ethics the, and aesthetics. And, and ethics and aesthetics. And what is valuable inherently and what is the purpose to things. And- all of that stuff in part depends actually on your philosophical position, some of which may or may not be um, you know, addressable by science in any way. So I don't know. Well, let, let's get started with one of these. <laughs> Wait, so let me just make this yeah. clear. Uh, get this clear, Massimo. So this episode is about why scientists should take philosophers more seriously, right? Is that Am I well, getting the, that correctly? I think the entire podcast is based about that. Uh, wait, I, never, I never signed anything <laughs> to that effect. No, fortunately, you didn't sign anything at all, in fact, <laughs> when we started this thing. Okay, so let's start, for instance, with determinism. Which, okay. is a, which is actually, you didn't mention it in the initial, initial list, but it is one of the isms that is uh, really fundamental um, in, to, to, to this discussion. So the term, determinism, by, by determinism in philosophy, I, I'm talking about causal determinism. That is the idea that, um, that the fundamentals of physics determine everything else in the universe. So um, if determinism, determinism is true, you know, having this conversation that we're having now today was in fact determined to happen at the beginning of the Big Bang, right? Because if the laws of physics are actually deterministic, if everything had to happen exactly, has to happen, follow in a causal, in a causally determined way, one thing after another, then, you know, the fact that we're here tonight having this discussion rather than, you know, having a beer at the bar around the corner was in fact determined from the beginning of the Big Bang. Masma, how does quantum randomness factor into that? Well, right. Because so I don't quant- think anyone denies that that's a real thing. Yes and no. <laughs> yes and mm-hmm. no. Yeah, that's right. I was surprised too when I did research for this episode. So as it Wait. turns out, <laughs> the obvious answer as it, uh, to let, – let's go back for a second here. Determinism was the, – the heyday of determinism in both physics and philosophy was uh, during the 17th and 18th centuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, Newton comes to mind. So this is back when people – the, the top minds thought that the universe could essentially be modeled as a bunch of billiard balls bouncing into each other. Yes, exactly. Right. So if we knew the initial positions and, and velocities of the billiard balls, we could calculate the entire path of the universe. Correct. Yeah. That was refer- famously referred to as the Laplacian demon, after, named after Laplace, because apparently it was the mathematician, the French mathematician, who made first this, this sort of thought experiment. He said, well, if there were a demon powerful enough that he could actually calculate all of the movements of all of the atoms in the universe that demon will be able to predict everything that has happened and will ever happen Mm -hmm. in the story. Now, um, as you correctly pointed out a minute ago, however, then came quantum theory. And uh, the standard interpretation, or at least uh, one of the standard interpretations of quantum mechanics, is that uh, uh, quantum mechanical events are referred to as, in fact, fundamentally random. Not random in the sense that we don't have enough information to figure out how they work, but really, truly, irreducibly random. Right. If so that's it's not true, that we don't know what the answer to, uh, you know, what the outcome of a certain process is. It's that there is no answer to what correct. the outcome is. Yeah. Correct. So that fundamental, if that fundamental indeterminism or that fundamental randomness is true, then determinism is wrong. End of story. Now, you would think, okay, so 
matter settled. And here, here we have a perfect example of, of how science can actually resolve a philosophical question. Right. Uh, I love about those Germany, right? instances. They're so interesting. Yeah. Except that doesn't work. And it doesn't work for the following reasons. First of all, um, I discovered by reading a, a really interesting article on causal determinism in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy um, just uh, recently. We will, we will put the, the link uh, to the article on the, on the website, but it was uh, authored by Carl Hofer. Mm -hmm. And uh, the article in question points out, first of all, that actually under certain conditions, even Newtonian mechanics is amenable to indeterministic answers. Although you really have to look very hard for it. And now don't ask me how that works. You have to read the, the, the okay, article. Okay, deleting in the, in my question. That's right. How does that work? All right, go on. That's right. But apparently, it, it, as it turns out, even a uh, classic physic, physical theory such as Newtonian mechanics actually is open, does leave a little bit of an, op an opening to determinism. But that's not what um, surprised me. What surprised me most is what came later in the article, which are two things. First of all, that the other major theory that replaced Newtonian mechanics, the general theory of relativity, also is amenable to uh, indeterminism. Mm -hmm. That is, contrary to what I thought when I learned about general relativity in, in college, uh, it's, I, I usually think of it as a deterministic, deterministic um, theory. And in fact, under most circumstances, it is. But there are certain uh, uh, situations in general relativity, for instance, the um, occurrence of so-called naked singularities, uh, they're naked not because they don't have clothes, but because they don't appear inside a or, uh, event horizon. In other words, they're not black holes. Um, now, naked, nobody knows it, whether naked singularities exist. But if they do exist, uh, as it turns out, the solutions to the general relativity equations that describe um, naked singularities turn out to be indeterministic. Okay, so now we got two physical theories that apparently are mechanistic, deterministic, but as it turns out, they may not be the, under unusual circumstances. But the real shock, I think, comes later. There, is, there are, as it turns out, a couple of interpretations of quantum mechanics that are perfectly deterministic. Now, I talked to a couple of physicists about this and said, well, wait a minute, I'd never heard of this thing, or I thought that this was gone, that this was Einstein's dream and it was not possible and all that sort of stuff. But as mm -hmm. it turns out, yes, the, uh, Shankaro, for instance, via a series of exchanges, um, on Google Plus confirmed to me that, yes, there are, in fact, interpret deterministic interpretations of quantum mechanics. Okay, so what resolves the question of whether the deterministic interpretations are right or the non-deterministic ah, interpretations are right? Or does this just come down to differing ways of describing the same thing? Ah, because that's, well, that's my intuition here. Well, my understanding is that actually that is not possible. The two theories cannot refer to the same fundamental reality. I mean, the fundamental reality is, it is deterministic. You know, physical events either are deterministic or they're not. But the problem is that there are at least two interpretations of quantum mechanics, one being the classic Copenhagen school, which is indeterministic. The other one that was proposed by David Baum in 1952, which is, in fact, deterministic, and the problem is that they are mathematically equivalent. They can explain exactly the same phenomena, which means that, at least at the moment, nobody can figure out an empirical way to discriminate between the two. Now, so are you saying that all of the all of the material in the universe, like if say we had two universes and uh, they were identical in every physical detail, um, okay. all down to the fermions and bosons, everything, right. but that it would be possible for one of them to for the for one interpretation to be right for one universe and the other interpretation to be right for the other universe oh that i don't know that's a good question um and uh i, I don't know that's that that um 
that would get us into sort of multiverse or multiple multiple universes. That's a good question. I don't know whether that is well, the I, case or I, not. I'm only bringing up the two equivalent, uh, physically equivalent universes, just to figure out if this is actually if the question you're asking about interpretation is really a question about about how the world is structured and how it works, or if it's just a question about how what the most um, natural way to explain it to ourselves is right no it is latter, about yeah. it is about the first it's it's about it is. How, okay so then right. it's about two how physically f- identical universes could not have different interpretations different correct interpretations not associated un- with them right not unless the laws of physics were different and by the way remind me but to then talk they about, are physically right exactly okay. then they're well they could be made of the same exact constituents that behave in exactly the same way and yet the laws are different meaning that in one case you uh. have a deterministic situation the other one you have an indeterministic one that's the pro- part of the problem but let's fix let's fix our ideas to on one universe because that's complicated enough it's just, it's, <laughs> it's just a matter of speaking right right now so so here's the, so the question now that we got ourselves into is um first of all that there are different theories that physicists physicists have um proposed over the last several hundred years that can be that alternate between being deterministic or indeterministic some of them are largely deterministic but they could uh, make room for some indeterminism. Some of them are fundamentally indeterministic, but we don't know which one is right, which makes the point that we really don't know whether the universe is deterministic or not because um, physics keeps changing its mind about it. Uh, it is the, the very fact that we have two alternative and mathematically equivalent interpretations of the same empirical data in, in terms of quantum mechanics, one of which is deterministic, the other one is not, it seems to me it tells you right there that the answer to that question, right at the moment at least, is who the hell knows. But there is a more disconcerting thing, which is one can say, well, but you know, the next theory is going to settle it, right? The next whatever the the, the next thing physicists are going to come up and do with the string theory, quantum loop theory, whatever mm-hmm. you want to do it, it's going to settle it. But of course, one could then look at the history of physics and say, well, that's optimistic. So far, we've kept alternating between you know, uh, deterministic and non-deterministic models of the universe. So who the heck well, is going to say that the next one is going to be the right one? Well, let me just clarify here. I don't think the question we were discussing was ever, is science going to eventually be able to explain everything? It's, I thought the question was, are there some questions that, that science could never, are just unanswerable by science, that right. have to be settled right. you know, using other systems of, right. of thinking, of Determinism could be one of them, and certainly determinism currently is one of them. That is, you know, we, you hear a lot of talk in, in skeptic and, and, and um, atheist circles these days about how, you know, the world is deterministic, therefore you don't have free will, therefore consciousness doesn't exist, mm-hmm. you don't think about anything, you think you think about anything, but in fact you can't, and all that sort of stuff. Um, that is all based, you know, in part at least, actually, there are several other assumptions that go into that kind of thing, of claims. But one of those claims is determinism. And we don't know whether the universe is deterministic or not. Um, so it's, the, the, my first point was simply to sort of um, uh, incite to con- cautious, cautiousness about these kind of things, because people might say that, oh, yeah, of course the, human, the universe is deterministic, or if they heard about quantum mechanics, and of course it's indeterministic, and it turns out the answer is, of course we don't know at the moment. Okay. So that's um, the, first, the first ism, right? Okay. <laughs> now, there is one that is very related, closely related to it, and that's reductionism. Uh, reductionism is a position that um, essentially says that, look, the way you want to understand how the universe works is to go to the smallest possible component, to the bottom level of reality. 
right? So it, it's corks all the way down, or it's strings all the way down, or whatever, whatever your preferred all all the way down is. It's elephants all the way down. So, elephants. Y- oh, we're yeah. just going to confuse people <laughs> if we talk about that. Yes. Okay. Um, no, yeah. nobody really thinks that 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 the reality, the bottom of the reality, is elephants. But um, the point is, uh, so the term, uh, sorry, uh, reductionism is this idea that. You know, it looks like there are complex things out there, but ultimately they're made of all the same stuff. And therefore, if you want to understand reality at the basic level, you got to go to that bottom to that bottom level. So, yes, we're here made of you know billions of of cells and and molecules and so on and so forth, but they're all really quarks. And really, all you need is at the bottom, at least in principle, quantum mechanics, and you're done. Um, there's nothing else. Yeah, I, I I like that description. I would add, I would qualify it a little bit to say that. Uh, the the objects and phenomena that we're used to talking about and, and studying are just a higher level of description. So right. they don't they right. don't sort of exist separately from you know the quarks that make them up. Right. Um, that's not saying they don't exist. It's just saying that uh, it's you know the, there are different levels of description that can all help us uh, think about the same set of quarks. Right. Now that is true if. Um, there's a couple of qualifiers there. It's true if, in fact, there are no, no, there's no such thing as, an, as a true emergent property. So an emergent property is a property that a system displays that is not simply the sum or a simple combination of the properties of the elements of that system. Uh, the classic example, there's many actually, but the classic example is water. Um, once you have water structure as H2O, as two atom, atoms of hydrogen and one in oxygen combined in a certain way, the resultant of that combination has certain physical properties, such as freezing at a particular temperature or having a, density, a particular density at a particular temperature and so on and so forth, that the individual components don't have, nor, you can, nor is it true that you can derive those properties of water by averaging out or simply somehow combining in some simple way the properties of the individual components. So that's an emergent property. Does that violate the reductionist view of the world as we described it? We don't know. And the question, the answer to that question, in the case of water, probably, my bet is probably not. Um, but there are more complex emergent properties. Obviously, some people think that consciousness is an emergent property, for instance. But let's stick mm. to water for a minute because it's easier to understand. So uh, nobody doubts, I don't think, at least, that water does have emergent properties. In that sense that I just described, okay. I mean, it's, it's true that the you know the boiling point of water is not uh, easily it, it's not fat at all derivable from the boiling point of hydrogen and oxygen taken separately or combined in a two to one ratio or something like that. It's in the property. It depends on the property of the actual molecule, right? Now the question is: Is that, however, an epistemic um, statement or is it an ontological statement? Meaning. Is it that we cannot derive the properties of water from looking at hydrogen and oxygen because we don't have enough information, we can't figure it out, but it's there? You know, and here comes back Laplace's demon, that if, if Laplace's demon were, were um, to come into a uh, laboratory of physics, we'll say, oh, yeah, of course you can derive the, the emergent properties of water. Here's how you do it. So is it, it's, in that case, if we can't do it, it's just a matter of epistemic limit. And, you know, right now, at least, there is no quantum mechanical theory of water, although, interestingly, people have actually tried and come up with partial ones. Or is it an ontological claim, meaning that, no, 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 the, the emergent properties of water are truly emergent. They cannot be reduced to the properties of the individual components. 
So what, we're do you, what do you mean by reducing a property? There are new laws of physics that emerge that are that, are, that come into effect only when certain materials or certain uh, or certain uh, uh, objects become complex enough or have certain properties. Yeah, I know so, it sounds strange, but there is really nothing illogical or particularly so, irrational okay, about that. <laughs> all right. Since since water isn't actually an example of this. Right, you were saying water is probably not. No, I, like, well, what I was saying you're, is you're that it not, is an it not, is an example of emergent property. The properties of water are emergent, are emergent properties. Mm-hmm. I am not sure that it's the best example because, as I said, people have actually tried to come up with a quantum mechanical model, which is apparently extremely complicated, um, that can re- that can predict the emergent properties of water starting from the constituent atoms from the quantum mechanical level, basically. Uh, right. That- so you're you're proposing a different kind of emergent property where a new law, law of physics suddenly yeah. takes effect when right. you have. Well, like I'm a not certain, proposing it. I'm no, just right, saying that it's just, out there. <laughs> you are, yeah. you are plenty of people trying are to describe. Yes. yes, plenty of so, people have postulated that, that that in fact the laws of physics are not. There, there are no such. There are fundamental laws of physics, but then they're layered. The laws of physics are layered, and that laws of physics are actually descriptors of how matter behaves. And matter behaves in a certain way at a fundamental level, and then it behaves in different ways at more complex levels. I, I, I mean, and those levels are not reducible. That, I mean, th- so we may not have any evidence to suggest that that is in fact the case in our universe. But even if it were the case, I don't see how that would be a violation of reductionism. I, I mean, reductionism, as I thought we were describing it, was just that uh, there are there may be different levels of description. <laughs> you know, you could describe uh, a a table. Or you could say it's a you know collection of pieces of wood, or you could say that the you know it's a collection of atoms or you know quarks and so on and so forth. You can keep going down to more and more fundamental um, building blocks of of reality. But wait, wait let me finish. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but the the table and the wood and and everything are, are descriptions there that make it easier for our brains uh, to right. understand what's going on. Right. They don't exist in a separate sense from the quarks that make them up. Right. That is and what so, reduction says. Right. Right. And so... But emergentism doesn't. Well, wait. <laughs> so even if there were, like, say you have, you know, five atoms and they obey certain laws of physics, but once you add a sixth atom, all of a sudden there's a new law of physics mm-hmm. that uh, causes them to behave in different ways. How does that violate the, uh, the claim of reductionism that... Uh, everything's really made up of quarks, no matter how we prefer to describe things. Well, because the claim of reductionism is not just that everything is made of qu- out of quarks. Nobody disagrees about that. Um, it's Actually, the- some philosophers do. I'd be surprised. The, I, have t- I have talked to very reputable philosophers who insist that the table exists. Uh, it's not just that the table is made of quarks. It's that the table exists as a separate thing than the collection of quarks shaped like a table. Yeah, I'm not sure that... that well, uh, I, we since I don't know who these philosophers are, we, we should, they shall okay. go un- unmentioned. So, but no, let me, let me go back to the, to the initial point, which was uh, determinism, the claim of determinism is stronger than, than the one you're making. Determinism Determin- or reductionism? Oh, sorry, the reductionism. Okay. Uh, whatever, that's what I said. That's the problem it's with the, having a stew of isms that we're trying to treat all in one episode. That's right. It's the, and not only that, but they're, they're actually, as I said, they're connected. Um, the claim of reductionism is not just that everything is made of quarks. As I said, except for apparently those philosophers, a uh, friend of yours, uh, pretty much everybody agrees. Uh, it's that all you need to, to know in order to understand how everything works is the fundamental level of, of physical causality. 
Uh, in emergentist, on the other hand, so the, here's another ism that we're going to be talking about today, the emergentism. And uh, if, if you subscribe to emergentism, you say, no, 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 wait a minute. Those emergent properties are not just emergent in the sense that we don't have enough information to reduce them to the basic properties of matter. They're really not reducible, period. Uh, they really are the manifestation of laws of physics that, that, that um, uh, only work at a different level. And, uh, and they are complementary and not contradictory to the fundamental laws, but they cannot be derived from the fundamental laws. Okay. So that, I don't know, that seems like something that's at least possible, even if we, it doesn't necessarily seem to be true in our universe. Well, I, how would you, why would you say that it's not true? Do you have any examples? Uh, uh, anything that you cannot reduce right now at the basic laws of physics would seem like it could count as an example, right? Like? Uh, like water at the moment. Uh, there, is not a, there isn't quite a quantum mechanical explanation of the properties of water. Now, you could say, but that's going to come up next year. Fine. And so if that one comes out next year, that, that turns out to be reducible. Wait, an explanation of the laws that's of water. That's right. And it, so no, what, a, what, a quantum mechanical prediction. What you need is a quantum mechanical prediction. It is a bottom level prediction uh, or explanation of the macroscopic lo- uh, level qualities of water, So for those instance. qualities would be things like... Uh, how it flows, or how yeah, the density of a, at a particular temperature, the boiling and you're, point, you and you're saying that if that we we couldn't make uh, accurate predictions at the moment, we can't. That's we can't. that's an empirical fact. Okay. So at the moment, the, since since we can't using only um, quantum mechanics, only quantum mechanics, right. yes. So at the moment, therefore, our situation is compatible with both the idea of determinism, which says you know determinists would say, well, just wait and see, and you know eventually we'll be able to do it. And with the emergentist who says, no, it doesn't matter how long you're going to wait, you will not be able to do it because you actually do need to take into account uh, laws that, have, that, that um, come into, into play at this higher level of complexity. Now, here's the tricky part about this, that on the one hand, you can, you can list all of the successes of determinism, which are many, especially in fundamental physics, of course, and can say, see, we've been successful so far, so what makes you think that we're not going to eventually, at least in principle, be able to explain the whole shebang just in terms of fundamental laws of physics? But the, but the emergentists could point to exactly the same sequence and say, yeah, but you, you actually solved only the parts that are very simple. And in fact, we have theoretical reasons in principle reasons to think that you will not be able to calculate everything in the universe, the status of everything in the universe based on, on first principles. You know, th- this is ready to the incomplete, incompleteness theorems. You just can't do it. And so it seems like it's another of those situations where it almost doesn't matter what the empirical evidence is. Uh, you could look at the same exact phenomenon and say, yep, it's emergent because we haven't redu- reduced it yet, or it's emergent because it's going to stay that way. Well, those, those seem like just different predictions about what will turn out to have been the case. Those don't seem like different philosophical positions to me. Uh, They're philosophical I- positions insofar as they... they um, postulate two different kinds of laws of physics underlying reality. Well, but as you were just saying, we we don't yet have enough information to know whether I there was, are laws of physics that, that kick in as soon as there's like a certain a certain sufficiently complex collection of quarks. But we don't know that they don't either. And that's, no, we don't. But that's, right. I mean, that's just a, a question that science hasn't settled yet. So it, it just... But it might never seem, be able to because... It might, but that's, that's not a philosophical position that it... I, I mean... Are you saying that some people claim that science will never be able to answer the question of whether uh, there are physical laws that kick in at sufficient levels of complexity? Correct. People say that. Correct. And in fact, as I said, they probably are right. 
because uh, incomplete lens theorems uh, do show that there, you will never be able, in fact, to, to, uh, to um, uh, create a model, a complete model of, say, something like the universe um, that is not going to make certain assumptions and certain is going to help itself, itself to, um, to uh, things that cannot be actually be verified or computed within the model. So we, we know that we're going to, as a matter of, uh, of practicality and possibly, as I said, as a matter of, of principle, we know we're not going to be able to ever produce the so-called theory of everything in the real sense of that word, in the sense of a theory that you can actually plug into a computer and say, yeah, here it is. It's, produce, it's, it's predicting that uh, Massimo and, and Julia are going to have this conversation right now as we speak. We're never, never going to be able to do that. Probably as a matter of principle, but certainly as a matter of practice, which means that the emergent disposition is always... Vi a viable option, or that the determinist, depending on how you want to look at it, the determinist position is never fully confirmed, which is why I'm agnostic about that. You notice that so far when we talked a lot about laws of nature. What do you think is a laws of na law of nature anyway? I'm curious because there's debate there too about you know what what is a law of nature. Clearly, it's not a law in the sense. I, I think we agree that it's not a law in the sense that there was a lawgiver meaning a god well, that my set these things in motion. My understanding is that we use the word laws of nature to describe um, relations that that have always held and that seem like they will continue to always hold right. Universal um, under certain conditions. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, the question, however, is from a... Uh, again, from a fundamental ontological perspective, so from the point of view of how things really are in the universe, mm -hmm. uh, one could ask the following question. Well, is the universe the way it is because of the laws of nature? Which is the way you usually... Wait, the laws of nature are part of the way the universe is. Well, no, no, no. I mean, the, the, the current structure of the universe, for instance, the, the fact that the universe is of a certain size and, it's, uh, uh, and the matter behaves in a certain way and so on and so forth. Is that the result of the laws of nature? which is the way usually you, you see it presented in, in at least elementary physics, mm -hmm. or um, the, the other, is it the other way around, which is laws and natures are simply descriptors of raw facts. The universe is the way the universe is, and we are able you know, to, to make certain generalizations, certain, certain abstractions, and we call those the laws of nature. In other words, the laws of nature are the result of the way right. the universe is. So this is the question of do the laws of nature cause... Uh, what happens yeah. or are the laws of nature just useful descriptions that exactly. help us understand, predict what happens? Exactly. I, I don't know. Those seem like just different ways of describing the same thing. I'm so, I, I, well, I kind of want to say that, well, that causality is just a useful concept that helps us uh, predict what happens. I, like, and I would sort of say the same thing, I think, for the laws of nature. I, okay. I'm not sure there's like actually that those two worlds you're describing, one in which the laws of nature cause what happens and one in which uh, they're just descriptions of what happens. I, I'm not sure that there's really a difference between those two worlds. Well, plenty of philosophers and scientists do think that there's a difference. In fact, there's a fundamental difference there because, um, again, the, the idea is that in one case, the causality goes well, one way. There are the laws. And then things happen as a result of those laws. Well, now, of course, then, that you know that leaves completely unanswered the question: where the hell that the laws come from? But that's yeah. And, that's and what would you say causes what happens in in the universe where the laws don't cause what happens? Um, 
I'm not sure well, that what, the, the, what the question is. Uh, well, you were, you were, we're, we're comparing two hypothetical versions of how right. the universe might work. One in which the laws of nature cause what happens. Right. And the second universe in which uh, things happen, happen not because of the laws of nature. Right. And we just use the laws as, as useful descriptions of what happens. Correct. So in that second universe, I'm asking, what causes what happens in the universe? Oh, yeah, the that's, that's a good question. But that is the same. That's really not the different as, as asking the question, what causes the laws? I mean, either well, that's way. A, that's you're... my way of trying to suggest that these are just <laughs> sort of different descriptions of what's going on. They're not. Uh, it, mm. Because if an ontological, from an ontological perspective, it's very different if you say that the laws of nature exist. In but see that I think prior... that question of whether they exist or not is just a question of what we want to def- how we want to define existing. Well, uh, that may be, but the, even however you define existence, those two situations are actually different. They're logically distinct. It's either one in in, in one A well, causes B, in the other one B causes A. They they are logically distinct, but but logic is just a, a set of concepts that we've come up with to help us describe things and and explain things. Okay. So. Uh, so the fact that they're different doesn't mean that the two universes are actually different. It just means that we're describing them differently. No, that's right. The universes, the two universes in question would, would behave exactly in the same way. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and so, so you agree the that they would behave in exactly the same way, and yet you think that there could be a difference between them. Correct. Because, you and, know, and, and the, and an the obs- difference between them, that's not just how we're describing them. That's right. It's the difference is what causes what. What, which way the, the causality, the, 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 the arrow of causality goes. And by the way, since we're talking about causality, of course, in all of this, we, we have helped ourselves, to, um, which most people would do in our place, to the concept of causality. That one is another ornate's nest. Um, you know, yes, <laughs> physicists indeed. and biologists and you know, scientists in general talk about causality all the time. But as it turns out, we really don't seem to have a particularly good grasp of what we mean by causality. And in fact, at least according to one interpretation of quantum mechanics, it cause, the, the whole concept of causality breaks down at the quantum level. That there is, things are happen without a cause, as counterintuitively uh, counterintuitive yeah. as that can be. I, I mean, this is all a pretty hairy field. My, uh, my working understanding of what's going on here is that uh, the Causal- when we say that causality breaks down in certain extreme uh, conditions or certain you know, extreme scales, it just means that this concept of causality that feels so intuitive to us doesn't really apply to what's going on at those low scales, which, which is what suggests, which is one of the reasons that I take the position that causality is just a concept that we use to describe things as opposed to some sort of... Right. I might uh, agree with you. Uh, and, and, um, but I, and in fact, I put laws of nature in the same category. Which is why, to me, there is a difference between those two uh, situations we were talking about earlier. That is, both laws of nature, I, f- I take the position that both laws of nature and causality are conceptual categories that human minds invent to help making sense or organize or whatever it is, reality as we, un- as we understand. It. That is, there is no such a thing out there as the laws of nature or causality. Um, and by, I, I think I can help clarify that last yeah. point. When you say that there is no such a thing out there as the laws of nature or causality, you're saying that uh, if the laws of nature, if there were two universes um, that were identical, except that the laws of nature existed, quote, out there in one universe um, and didn't in the other, uh, they would still just be identical, which means that it's uh, a meaningless distinction. That's right. Now, um, 
But that does bring us to yet another ism, naturalism. Okay, this might have to be our last ism. <laughs> it might, might have to be. For this episode. Uh, but, they, but it is related to the other ones in the following sense. That is, you know, when, we, when you ask what is out there, mm-hmm. uh, most of us, uh, certainly I, I assume both you and, and I, uh, answer that, well, whatever is out there, it's physical. Um, and it's natural. And those are two, again, uh, two, uh, two additional isms, physicalism. Mm-hmm. Everything out there is physical, and and naturalism. Everything out there is natural. There is there is no supernatural out there, mm-hmm. right? Now those are also are uh, positions that I think are eminently sensible, of course, but they are uh, they do run into trouble at some level. Uh, for instance, let's talk about physicalism first, actually. So it depends on what one means by physical. Wait, right? you just introduced another ism. I said naturalism to the last. I know. <laughs> I, I'm trying to get my way around two instead of you one. You thought I wouldn't notice. Uh, yeah. You were paying attention tonight. <laughs> Go Damn. on. Uh, okay. So physicalism is this idea that everything is, ma- is made of matter or matter energy. I, we're not going to make that distinction at this point. Matter energy, we'll, con- we'll talk about it as one thing. It's that if there are two universes that are physically identical, then... They are identical. They period. are identical. Yes. Exactly. Um, because there is nothing else out there. There is no, no, no non physical thing. True. But then you have to explain the ontological status again, that is the, the status of the existence of other things that, in some sense, one can reasonably make an argument exist, and yet they're not physical, such as, of course, every single mathematical object. You know, ah, see, I would, I would like call that. those concepts. I think they're things that we've defined. I, I don't. I don't think that, that poses any kind of problem for them, you know, being these weird things that are in the universe but not made of matter or energy. Well, it does become, in some sense, I don't, I don't want to go into the into the Platonist discussions of, of mathematics. And we that makes do, two of us. Yeah, and that should. That, but although we probably should ask a philosopher or a mathematician to come and talk about about it, but actually there is a good number of philosophers and interestingly mathematicians who actually would disagree with your take. That is that they would say that mathematics doesn't invent things; they discover it. It discovers it. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Mm, no. if, well, let's take that, however, that possibility as just for the sake of argument. So if you are a, um, if you take that position about mathematical objects, that is, you think that mathematicians really discovered things, um, then clearly those things are not, you know, nobody is claiming that those things are physically out there. That like I mean, theorems are, yeah, exactly. you know, have some location in space time. Although interestingly, when I was walking down here um, uh, before taping the podcast, I passed by what is soon going to be the new uh, Museum of Mathematics. Uh, which is on uh, Madison Square Park. Oh yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Yes, one. I want to know. I want to see the original number four. I'm <laughs> sure it's going to be <laughs> in one like of the made exhibits. out of clay. Or <laughs> yeah, it's going to be in one of the exhibits. <laughs> so anyway, no, no, no mathematical platonist certainly goes that way, right? But in some sense, they claim those kinds of, of objects are actually have some kind of existence that is not physical, and yet it's not it's not arbitrary. It's not the stuff that we just well, make up. I agree, it's not arbitrary, conditional on a certain set of starting premises and definitions, right? That. Yes. Anyway, so that's physicalism. <laughs> okay. And then there is finally, we go back to the one that, um, that um, you wanted me to hold to, which was uh, naturalism. Now, naturalism is, is, you know, this idea that the world is natural. There's no supernatural. So there's the, phys- the laws of physics are natural and there is no miracles, nothing like that. Now, the interesting distinction there is between naturalism as a methodological position and naturalism as a philosophical position, mm-hmm. right? So uh, methodological naturalism is a 
uh, essentially epistemological position. It says, look, I'm a scientist. The way I understand the world, the way I, I, I work toward understanding the world is by assuming that everything that I study has is the result of natural processes. I don't know whether there is a supernatural out there. It just doesn't enter into it. It doesn't help me understand how the world works. Therefore, I keep it out. Um, so it's an epistemological position. It doesn't make any claims about the existence or non-existence of, super, of the supernatural. It just says it doesn't, it doesn't help. Mm -hmm. A philosophical naturalist, of course, is somebody who goes a step beyond that and makes an ontological claim, a claim about existence, or in this particular case, a claim about non-existence. That is, an, a philosophical naturalist is somebody who says, you know, the supernatural just doesn't exist, period. It, it's, it's a, and, and it's important to understand, I think, that it is um, that those two positions are distinct, uh, the methodological one and the philosophical one, because too often we hear um, the, these, this idea that, well, if you're a scientist, you have to be an atheist, uh, or, or, or uh, if you're not an atheist and you are a scientist, then you, there's something wrong with your mind because clearly you're, you're confused. Well, you're that's, not, because you could no be a methodological naturalist. Sorry. Uh, for the purposes of this discussion, how are you defining supernatural? Oh, let's see. I actually have a definition of the supernatural right here. Um, this one is uh, from a, a classic paper that I highly recommend on methodological naturalism and philosophical naturalism, mm -hmm. clarifying the connection by Barbara Forrest. It appeared in Philo um, back in, uh, in 2000. And Barbara um, gives a distinct uh, definition of uh, supernatural. She says, supernaturalism, by which... Um, I mean, belief in a transcendent, non-natural dimension of reality inhabited by a transcendent, non-natural deity. Transcendent uh, what? Transcendent space and time, presumably. And non-natural in what sense? In the sense that uh, the being in question is not bound by the laws of nature, however you want to think about the see, laws of nature. It, the reason that I think the concept of the supernatural is just, just logically incoherent is that if there were something that were not bound by the laws of nature... I would interpret that as we're wrong about what the laws of nature are, not that there's something outside of the laws of nature. Well, you know, um, on, on, on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I think the same way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sympathetic. I, I find this very difficult yeah. to think about, and I've, I've sort of gone back and forth on what, what I think right. the concepts now, can mean. During weekends, I tend to be agnostic. <laughs> but <laughs> the rest of the week, I'm a little more troubled. Um, so let me, let me give you one way to think about it. So let's, um, some philosophers have point, have, and physicists even, have proposed the possibility, which is nothing other than a possibility, that reality as we understand it is actually a simulation in somebody else's computer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, now, it's, of course, that idea uh, has been around in philosophy for a long time. You know, George Berkeley thought of, you know, the idealist, empiricist, empiricist interestingly, and idealist philosopher. He lived, he was a contemporary of Hume. He thought that that was true, except that it wasn't a computer simulation. It was the mind of God that brought up the whole thing. Now, it certainly doesn't, doesn't seem to be uh, implying any logical contradiction, the idea that, yes, we are, in fact, the result of somebody else's computer program. Right. But if that would that just mean true, that... Sorry. Well, no. What I'm saying is, if that is true, then what we think of as the laws of nature or reality as we understand it and all that in a very interesting sense, wouldn't really exist, and they would be entirely arbitrary, and certainly they wouldn't be, or very likely, they wouldn't be the same laws of nature that are bounding the creator or you know, the computer programmer. Um, so in that sense, I can actually make sense of the idea of a transcendental, transcendental being outside of space and time. It's the big computer programmer out there who this drew the, 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 you know, uh, the, the code for the program, and the code works in a, complete, in, a different, in a way that has absolutely nothing to do with the laws of nature as they are 
where the computer programmer lives, whatever well, the hell that is. Well, then I guess we'd have to start like space and time then would refer to uh, space and time like at one level and then there would be outside outer space and time. I'm, I'm not sure that I'd be willing to say we're wrong about the laws of nature existing, just that they well, don't they don't apply like that there's other things they don't apply to ugh, i don't very, know it's so it, tough yeah exactly in a very important sense i think in a, in a very interesting sense uh there wouldn't be laws on nature because this guy would just could could, could presumably uh write the code in a completely different way and you know well, arbitrarily right and the way we we, we, well, we write computer programs uh or hmm. video games right i mean would you would you think that uh, super mario is bound by the laws of physics <laughs> what, what do you mean uh, <laughs> that talk okay. doesn't really make much sense Okay. It, it's we, bound by the arbitrary decisions of a computer programmer. Oh, I just got a great idea. Massimo, can we do an episode on the simulation hypothesis? Please? Sure. Both, both like whether there's any reason to believe it and what it would mean we were wrong about if it were true. If we can find somebody or some interesting angle on it, sure, why not? Well, I think our, our listeners deserve a, a prize if they manage to follow all of our conversation today, but I hope they found it as interesting as I did nonetheless. Uh, Before we move on to the Rationally Speaking picks, I'd like to remind all of our listeners about the upcoming fourth uh, Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism, which will be held on April 21st and 22nd here in Manhattan, New York. Uh, Maso and I will both be there recording an episode of the Rationally Speaking podcast, as well as a wonderful lineup of other speakers and panelists and performers. So we hope to see you there. Go to www.nexus.org. That's N-E-C-S-S.org to buy tickets now before they sell out. And now we'll move on to the Rationally Speaking Picks. Welcome back. Every episode, Julie and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. Let's start, as usual, with Julia's pick. Thanks, Massimo. My pick is a book called The Robot's Rebellion, Finding Meaning in the Age of Darwin. Uh, This is uh, by an author. I know, great title, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a a book by an author who I cited a few episodes ago, actually, for a pick. Um, His name is Keith Stanovich. And the other book was called uh, Rationality and the Reflective Mind. Um, he's, he's a great professor, writes a lot about rationality and, and naturalism, which is why I'm bringing it up for this episode. So the idea of the book, the robots are us, are people. So it, it's about how we are, it's expanding on the idea that we are just replicating machines for our genes. Um, and what is that, what is that knowledge, really accepting that knowledge, what does that tell us about how we should, what our goals should be and, you know, how we should think about our lives and our place in the world and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And and in particular, I liked it because it really gets you, it really focuses your attention on questioning which of your goals are serving yourself and which of your goals are serving your genes. Because it's easy to conflate the two if you're not thinking consciously about it. And it appealed to me because I take great pleasure in confounding my genes' interests. Like, ah, I have a very yes. antagonistic relationship with my genes. So anything that, just because, you know, they're, they're such users, right? Like, I know. Like, I hate the idea, for example, that once I can, be of, can no longer be of use to my genes by reproducing them, they no longer care about keeping me alive and healthy, you know? Right. Of course, you, you, do, you do realize that that attitude itself defeats the whole idea of, a, of, the, of the extreme version, at least, of the uh, selfish gene model. Wait, what, what do you mean? It well, defeats. How, how, do you get, how do you get this uh, ability of trumping your genes? 
uh, how do I get it? Well, my genes certainly didn't plan for me to have it. I got it right. sort of as a byproduct of other things that it was building into me for its own purposes. So I just, mm. I like, I take pleasure in, you mm. know, so for example, uh, the existence of birth control gives yeah. me great delight because it's essentially like, you know, our genes are dangling the enjoyment of sex as this carrot in front of us so that we'll run, you know, fast on the treadmill or whatever that's equivalent to making babies, which is what our genes want us to do. Yeah. But we, through our, our innovation and cleverness, have figured out a way to grab the carrot without actually having to run on the treadmill. I think that's delightful. Anyway. I think it is true. Um, the, the real question is, of course, how, do we, how, how were we able to, to do that? How, how, how did that happen? Yeah. Because, you know, from the point of view of natural selection, that's a very inefficient way of doing things. Why, 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 allow, Wait, why allow organisms to get that kind of independence from genes? Well, it, I mean, genes aren't brilliant. They, you know, they, no, but natural selection usually gets things done pretty, pretty nicely. Um, so it's, it seems like you're pointing out to a ma- major failure of natural selection that allows all that kind of latitude for uh, an organism to actually be that much free of its own genes. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. All right. yeah. All right. Okay. Well, as it turns out, my pick also is about Darwin, um, although from a very different perspective. This is a book by um, uh, Elliot Sober, who is one of the most prominent uh, philosophers of biology uh, alive today. And his new book, uh, published by Prometheus, uh, is called Did Darwin Write the Origin Backwards? Um, philosophical essays on Darwin's theory. And um, it, it is a collection of essays, but it's a f- particularly coherent collection of essays. So they, all the essays actually are st- strung together in a, with, with, a, with a logical, uh, in a logical series. And the title comes from the idea that there are two um, fundamental concepts that underlie uh, Darwin's theory, the idea of natural selection and the idea of common descent. Now, in the book, Darwin talks about natural selection first, and then he gets to common descent later. And one of the things that Sober argues is that from an evidential perspective, you should be doing it exactly the other way around. You should establish first the reality of common descent because then it's common descent as a background uh, condition that allows you to test hypotheses about natural selection. Does he, is there any reason he's pointing this out other than just like... He's interested in the logical structure of the, Darwinian, the original Darwinian theory and now how then it evolved later into the modern theory of evolution. So it starts out by pointing uh, okay. out, by analyzing. he's not saying that Darwin was wrong in doing what he did. He's just pointing out that from a, from a logical evidentiary perspective, uh, things should actually go the other way around. And if you, put a, if, you, if you think of it that way, it turns out that the two ideas are not two independent pillars of Darwinian theory. One is completely dependent on the other one. Um, it's not logically, but it's empirically dependent on the oh, other. Oh, okay. That actually seems like a relatively meaningful point to yeah. make. When you first described it, I thought he was basically saying, like, that it was equivalent to saying to someone, you know, your essay would flow better if you just, like, rearranged <laughs> these two paragraphs. And I was like, yeah. why write a book on that? No. Like, if you're going to edit past <laughs> writers, like, pick up Kant or something. Like, he needed a good editor. Yes. You could, your time could be used better, Sober. I would. I, I anyway. would no, it's, it's not just an attempt to edit, um, okay. to give editorial right, suggestions post-mortem. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's good. <laughs> all right, it sounds interesting, actually. All right, we're all out of time. So this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. 
Thank you for listening.